0: One programming note for listeners, this week the podcast will be playing some of our favorite rerun episodes. We'll be back with new episodes on Tuesday, November 16th. Today's episode is a rerun of the third and final part of our series exploring investor acquisitions of physician practices. We look at one of the early waves of investment in the hospital-based physician space, like emergency medicine physicians and anesthesiologists, which private equity firms started rolling up in the early 2000s. As we've been reporting on, recent investor acquisitions among physician practices have been focused on office-based specialties like dermatology, ophthalmology, and proceduralists like gastroenterology and orthopedics. Private equity firms are not long-term holders of practices, rather playing a roll-up function over three to seven years that then leads to a sale. Aaron Fuse Brown is a law professor at Georgia State University College of Law and the director at the Center for Health, Law, and Society. She researches approaches to healthcare consolidation and market regulation.
2: Private equity investors are really adept at identifying revenue opportunities, payment loopholes, market failures that they can exploit to to make money for their investors. So as we consider the impacts of the current waves, it's
0: worth looking at the earlier wave of investment of hospital-based specialists that might be cresting. Starting in the early 2000s, private equity firms started investing in hospital-based physicians like anesthesiologists, emergency physicians, hospitalists, and radiologists.
2: What we saw play out there is basically emblematic of what we are seeing play out elsewhere with a different story, obviously a different playbook, Um, but basically private equity finds a place to make money in healthcare, it swoops in, it invests, it drives up revenues, it pursues that strategy, it sells, um, and then it moves on. Aaron and several other health policy researchers are studying private equity
0: interest in physician practices and if they're exploiting market failures any more than other investors like venture capital firms or insurers. One thing all these investors have in common is they're providing practices with capital, a much-needed boost for practices trying to adapt to the increasingly expensive and complicated landscape of practicing medicine. This started with hospital-based physicians in the early 2000s. And Dr. Jerry Mascioli is an anesthesiologist. He experienced it firsthand. He was practicing in North Carolina with a large group of more than 60 anesthesiologists called Critical Health Systems of North Carolina.
1: Big historically beats little. And as the insurers consolidated, a lot of the hospital-based specialties, radiology, anesthesiology, emergency medicine, pathology, you know, generally smaller groups, 10 to 20, sometimes 30 positions, really forced groups to get bigger and bigger. And, and the need for groups to get bigger and bigger made for aggregators like, like many who are out there. And there's Napa, there's Team Health, there's Envision, there's Fatuity, uh, as some of the bigger players in the space.
0: In 2007, Jerry and the team sold their practice to what is now called Mednax, a publicly traded multi-specialty group.
1: Managing a group that size, the insurance, uh, the billing, the compliance, the quality reporting, the legal becomes such an enormous uh, expense and really time consuming for physicians who by by training take care of, of patients and so The opportunity to join a larger organization that would bring all those resources with far more power than an individual group could bring to bear and at a consolidated price point, getting economies of scale, it just it seemed like the right thing to do.
0: In the following years, there were several other deals. Earlier this month, the USC Brookings Schaefer Initiative for Health Policy published a report identifying that between 2010 and 2020, there were more than 370 publicly reported acquisitions of these hospital-based specialties by private equity firms and other non-hospital companies. Jerry continued to practice after his group was sold to MEDNAX. He ended up becoming chief quality officer at Envision Healthcare, but left last year. Envision, which is owned by PE firm KKR and the other large physician staffing firm Team Health, owned by private equity firm Blackstone, account for about a third of the outsourced market for emergency department specialists.
1: Uh, when you're in a larger group, you get an economy of scale on, on costs. Of course, you have much stronger contract negotiations in a larger group. So it's, so it's really both ends of the spectrum, the, the expense side and then the ability to negotiate for revenue side
0: and one well documented impact is that private equity back groups were much more aggressive in their billing practices
2: here's Erin emergency providers Uh, Anesthesiologists, air ambulance providers, they don't really depend on being in network for their patient volume, right? I mean, by definition, they are the kinds of specialties where, you know, you you see them in an emergency or it's not, you don't get a referral, you don't choose your anesthesiologist. And so as a result, they realized, uh, private equity investors realized that if you stay, if you're that specialty and you stay out of network, you can not only charge a higher price, just, you know, an out-of-network price, but then you can also balance bill the patient for an additional amount, you know, the difference between your charges and the, you know, whatever the insurance company is going to pay. And it is a revenue opportunity for, um, for those physician staffing companies. So that's an example of a payment loophole where the laws basically allow balanced surprise billing to occur. Um, and then private equity floods the market. We see surprise billing become like this, this rampant phenomenon. This became such a problem that state and federal
0: policymakers took notice. And last year, Congress passed a law to close that loophole called the No Surprises Act. Starting in January, patients will be taken out of the middle of these disputes between providers and insurers, and instead they will be mediated by arbitrators. The law instructs these arbitrators to assume that the median in-network rate for the services is the right one. This pushes leverage to the insurers, or as Jerry puts it,
1: a no holes barred drop-dead gift to the insurance industry.
0: The net effect is that without this leverage, it will likely be less profitable for private equity firms to own these physicians. So I asked Erin
2: what she expects
0: to happen, assuming this law is enforced as we expect.
2: Well, I think that they will see the writing on the wall and they'll see that this, um, you know, really the revenue model for emergency medicine, for anesthesiology, for air ambulance was this out of network you know, balance billing model um, and surprise billing model. And so when the spigot gets turned off on surprise billing revenue, we can imagine that that will result in the private equity investors looking elsewhere for sort of bigger pots of money. Um, to to pour their investment into. Uh, it's basically going to be, it's not like they'll all of a sudden exit the entire market, but I think what we'll see is that they're, gonna, they're going to train their eyes on some new specialties with a different playbook that isn't based on out-of-network billing.
0: Which we have already started to see. In the last few years, there's been a flood of investment into office-based practices and proceduralists. When these investors enter the market and roll up these practices, it can make it even harder to remain independent. Dr. Jane Zhu is a primary care physician and health services researcher at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. If you're an independent practice, you're
3: either like you're you're thinking about all the time about selling, or you have to like sort of adopt practices that PE firms are doing. So either you're gonna be you're you're going out there to eat, or you're gonna be eaten. And so um, the pressures that they are facing all the time. If you're an independent practice, if you're not. Thinking about selling your practice, you're going to have to buy practices or you're going to have to expand or, you know, capture some referral networks in some way. Like there's all these competing pressures at all times. And in this sort of competitive environment, you're either the predator or the prey. And that's sort of a dynamic that's happening 24-7. Jane started studying this topic because
0: when she was coming out of medical school, she was hearing from colleagues that were joining practices who were either approached by or sold to private equity firms. She authored a paper in JAMA last year that identified private equity firm acquisitions between 2013 and 2016. At that time, the bulk of the interest was in the hospital-based specialties, but already started to shift towards office-based and proceduralist specialties. She wrote that since PE firms expect a 20% annual return, there may be pressures to rely on advanced practice providers or keep more referrals internal. What's still unclear after all these years of private equity acquisitions of these practices is how, if at all,
3: they're impacting the quality of patient care. So far, we don't know that much about much. and that's where a lot of the uncertainty lies. There's been a handful of, of really well-designed, robust studies that looked at hospital ownership, nursing home ownership, and then a couple that are focused on a couple, uh, you know, some specific specialties. The most popular one has been dermatology. Overall, uh, the, the data really shows that there are some changes in prices and volumes after private equity acquisition in that prices may go up volume of services may go up. There's also been, um, you know, studies in, by the same ticket that have shown very little change after private equity acquisition. Um, but overall, the, the data is, is not super conclusive.
0: And claims data is a few years delayed. So it will likely be a while before we have more evidence on what the impacts have been and whether they're really any different than practices acquired by other companies like insurers or hospital systems. At the end of the day, Jane says with the demands of practicing medicine increasing, like electronic health records
3: and the trend towards value-based care and population health. In this larger setting, um, practices are needing to stay afloat and to grow. And if there are practices that are wanting to stay independent, they need capital. And private equity is a source of capital. But so are other bigger health systems. So are groups like Optum. There's, There's sort of pressures coming from all sides. During this, this past couple of years with the COVID-19 pandemic, that's all the more obvious that lots of smaller practices are really struggling with financial viability. So I see this as sort of private equity being just one more player in, in a larger landscape where you know, you're having this consolidation and corporatization of healthcare um, across across sectors. That was Dr. Jane Zhu at OHSU,
0: Aaron Fusay-Brown, Professor of Law at Georgia State University, and Dr. Jerry Massioli. Thanks for listening to GIST Healthcare Daily. I'm Alex Olkin. You can check out more insights on healthcare business and policy news on GISTHealthcare.com. GIST Healthcare Daily is an independent production of GIST
3: Healthcare.